I'm Colin Williams. And I'm Ian Rowlands. And welcome to Beneath the Stream, a podcast about the human experience in the non-human world. The topic for this episode is something that we have talked about before as being important to our experience. Um, and it's the topic is light. And so just coming over the crest of the hill, there's a, a, a little hawthorn, quite a stunted hawthorn, clearly blown by the wind up here on the top of the downs on the edge of a on the edge of a small pond maybe an old dew pond but there was a kestrel in the tree in the top of the tree and we instantly recognized it as such and as we got a little bit closer it kind of dropped off the tree and sort of peeled away over the farmland but it again without that quality of light if it had been a blazing hot summer day we'd have perhaps seen the sort of russet red on on the back and would have seen those browns and would have seen the black wing tips as it as it peeled away but we didn't today and I, and I love that silhouette i think it's um it stirs something you to see a shape of a bird I mean, particularly predatory birds mm. and that kind of silent hunched quiet on the edge of a field sort of um if you feel all the detail of the bird you're gonna you're gonna watch where its eyes are looking you're gonna, you're gonna see exactly what it's doing but there it's like a shape sort of pregnant with what's it going to do next yeah and the light sort of the light that's taken away from us actually leaves more to the imagination i think you and i went to a, a presentation with the, the sort of filmmaker and, and sort of broadcaster john Aitchison. yeah and actually it was a long dwell time on particular sequences with not very much happening no it could be a lone bird feeding for a great yeah. length of the time yeah. or or the movement of water yeah 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 and, and so there was some movement there but it allowed you plenty of time to really and maybe that's it or maybe that's what I'm trying to get at is that is that understanding what the quality of light is doing for most people it, it it's not immediately obvious no we we live we're visual animals so we live with it all the time so we take it for granted we don't appreciate its subtleties in order for it to really register with us what it's doing we need to pause and dwell on it and mm. unless it's some melodramatic event in nature the most spectacular sunrise or sunset or scorching heat most of the time the quality of light is so subtle that we're not really yeah and and that's interesting because because we've we've talked so far about the whole effect of it um, Mm -hmm. but what was interesting about hearing um john aitchison talk was that he was his camera was focused on really specific movements of light uh, whether it was over water, whether it was reflected from a stone or reflected on sand, he was really focusing on things that even those who think about it don't frequently see. And I think his words were that he was going in search of beauty. The effect of light at the minuscule level yeah. is very powerful. So how does the light at the time of day affect our experience in the world? It's interesting, within the sort of, um, within the Native American medicine wheel approach, you know, the, the east as a direction, you're looking north, south, east, west, above and below, and 
the, the universe around you, the, the way in which we greet the sun as it arrives. Um, and actually there's an expressed gratitude yeah. every time the light yeah. arrives. So maybe that's something that I now carry with me. Every right. Time. So my, the quality I, I see in the light is a gratitude to see it rise again and the way that it illuminates things. And um, is it because I'm human and I'm uncomfortable with the darkness as a medium to receive information? Or is it that the way in which light strikes things in the morning gives it a whole new quality? It's like seeing something fresh every time. Mm. Recently, I reread The Song Lines by Bruce Chatwin. And he recounts a lot of creation myths in that book of the Aboriginal peoples of Australia. And there's a, remi a reminder in there that in their creation narrative, um, the earth was created by the sun. And so when that light arrived, it awoke ancestors that were until then sleeping. And it was those ancestors which um, spawned, for want of a better word, the creatures of the world. And then as that day of creation faded, the ancestors slept again and became the... Um, features of the landscape and so for them the arrival of light is is essential it they, they would not be there without light in their creation narrative um, and I've forgotten if that's the right word to feel any of that <laughs> and I, I love that because it, it's uh, I think we uh, culturally, let's say, and it's a bit of a cliche, but I think it's probably true that culturally we in Western Europe and in the West generally, um, we've so assiduously driven out those sorts of myths and relationship to ancestors and beings um, that we wouldn't allow ourselves to think that. And yet light is is so fundamental. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so we, we, and we have, um, we've driven it into the material world and that's where we that's where we consider light and not in that way. It's funny. I was thinking then as you were talking about. I heard an interview with um, Albert Masivoko of uh, Ladysmith Smith on Basel. Mm -hmm. Talked about growing up on this farm, where you know at night you passed your hand in front of your face and you couldn't see your hand. It's so dark. And then what it felt like to see the light right. arrive again. And I remember. Um, hiking the length of some islands in the Outer Hebrides a long time ago. Um, it was a long, something like six weeks I spent doing it. Right. And I hadn't appreciated how important light was. And I got so used to the fact that the, the day was governed by the, the available light. And then when the light went down, I could no longer read a book. And I couldn't read again until the light came up. So let alone doing the the everyday human things like cleaning your teeth, the, the yeah. stuff that I wanted to do yeah. to nourish myself yeah. was limited, prescribed in some way by by the available light. Yeah. And it was such a shock actually when I came back and stayed in somebody's house on the mainland of Scotland and it got to sort of seven o'clock and I put my book down expecting not to get a read and then they said why don't you put the light on yeah, <laughs> yeah. And I completely do that you're I, indoors I completely forgot that that was a possibility so yeah so yeah it's kind of going off at a tangent but that notion of light being associated with myth and bringing life and yeah. awakening things yeah and then the fact that most of the things that we do once upon a time were entirely driven around mm. available light very visceral, Colin. I should really like these trees as well because there's great, there's great silhouette scimitars of trees kind of 
arced on the skyline and and again they like I don't think I'd look at them in the same way in bright sunlight no an artist friend of mine describes them as ink blown um, where you can see it across the sort of white paper of the sky they do just like like trails and streams of blown ink Um, and um, that they are they they are particularly beautiful and and something as you say that only occurs at a certain time of year certain light well I like it because it reminds me of it's like like the light factor again it's like um, like Balinese puppet theatre or something when something is just shapes so it's an archetype. It's like when you when you buy a little ornament for the <laughs> and it's lit by a candle and it, it becomes just a caricature of itself mm. and, that, and that's what a winter tree looks like really today. So I want to move us on to dusk. I like that because I think this is perhaps even more so than the dawn. Something that we, you and I, would recognise as being a a special time. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a you're right, it's liminal, it's a transition between two states, and because of that, those two states cross over to a certain extent. The world exhales, and, and I do as well. Um, and the Scandinavians, rather wonderfully, call that moment the velvet hour. Hmm. And it's a soft part of the day, um, something that is comfortable, and something that is makes us feel good about ourselves. Am I talking nonsense or is the dusk special for a lot of people? Um, yeah, I think it is. I'm tempted to say you're talking nonsense just for the yeah, sake of it. Yeah, yeah, really, but, yeah um, obviously. <laughs> I think because I had a, a mental picture as you were talking, which is because I love the way you describe it leading into something. At dusk, yeah, and it's interesting because traditionally you might think of it's like a door opening or closing. So at, at dawn, it, it's like drawing back the curtains, or it's opening a door, and the crack of the door gets wider and wider and wider, and it reveals more. You see more of the world, and and the opposite seems to be true at dusk, in that the, you're shutting down the light, and your view of things becomes more acute somehow. Um, but I think there's something about dusk where you you transition from the familiar to the unfamiliar and I think as humans we we love that yeah and I think there is an obvious thing that most people would much like to be awake for the sunset and the other sunrise involves a heroic effort to get up at dawn to see see the sunrise so I think there's something much more likely that people experience that but I also think that tripping over into the magic of darkness is something that is inherently appealing to humans and we then illuminate the darkness with also it's a whole different conversation with yeah. lights, with fireworks, with fire, with with whatever. But um, yeah. but I think it, it we we tip over into an unfamiliar world, mm. and mm. and we see it closing in on us. Yeah. Um, if ever you've you know seen an eclipse, it's it's a supernatural occurrence to have the yeah. light winked out. I mean tends to wink back on again but it's winked out in, yeah, a, in a wholly unreal way which fascinates people people take, make those journeys across the planet mm. to be in the, in the path of a, a solar eclipse yet we can experience that moment almost every evening yes yeah which it doesn't feel unnatural because we're expecting it and we're prepared for it mm. yeah carrying on the conversation we had about 
what definition the world appears in at these different times of day with these different qualities of light. Um, I also think dusk has the ability to, if, if this makes sense, bring things even more into focus. So instead of, um, I don't know, instead of a bird flying across the sky or, uh, or a deer crossing a field being a piece of biology, um, at dusk, because you can't make out the colours in the same way, you are just looking, more so looking at shapes rather than, rather than 3D mm -hmm. images, as mm -hmm. it were. Um, you sort of let go of the need to quantify and catalogue everything you're seeing and instead you, subconsciously or not, begin to enjoy it for what it is. You begin to enjoy the shape of that bird flying across the sky as something ineffably mm -hmm. lovely and beautiful. I agree, but so the question is, do you, do you feel less need to, to name that creature and identify it in some nerd bookkeeping style checklist manner? And does it just, does it become an inherent creature of silhouette and beauty and light and different qualities is, is mm. that what it is or is it I, something else i don't know i can never suppress the nerd too much um because i've got a pathological need to make sure i do record these things but why else would you be doing a podcast oh, quite it? right yeah. um but i I, th I think i do feel less need to do that i do feel as if my work of understanding the world has in part passed with the daylight um, and now the dusk is a time for me to relax into enjoying it more and being part of it I'm just becoming a shape in the gathering darkness um, rather than a threat or, or rather than just an observer I become much more part of it it's I an interesting one isn't it because it's actually it's almost impossible there will be examples in the animal world for whom their senses work like ours but mm. you know that most creatures we encounter will have as clear a vision of us in the in darkness as they do in daylight whereas for us that world is closed down um, so it'd be interesting to see what other other animals experience of that because darkness doesn't seem to hold I mean lots of animals go to sleep and they roost and they escape predators and mm. it's the shutting down time but it seems that when they open their eyes a flock of geese can still see the fox coming. Yes. Um, yeah. the, the, the day hasn't really changed for them, and they would see you way better than you would, you would see them. I was in Mexico one time, and this group of orcas that we saw from the boat, and we were on a liveaboard boat, miles from civilization, uh, anchored in a remote bay on a peninsula, and this group of orcas were sighted, and they came over to the boat and were clearly enormously interested. We were the most interesting thing they'd encountered, I guess, in, in that day or previous days. And it was a magical encounter because the animals were circling the boat. There were several large bull killer whales with their sort of two metre high dorsal fins and the, the bulls swam upside down and waggled their pectoral fins at us. So, but you, I was armed with the camera and busy trying to understand the behaviour and in a utter sense of sweary wonder <laughs> about it just shocked by the experience and, and, and bowled over by it and trying to work out 
how many males there were in the group and uh, which might be the matriarchal female and how many young were there what size is the group what are they doing why are they doing this and um and documenting it in some way the light sank and um our excitement began to simmer down and you know when you've had one of those yeah. moments it then turns yeah. into repeating all the things you've just yes. seen and yes. enjoying recounting the story together even though you've all just watched it together and all know what happened <laughs> but you, you recount all that over a glass of something and I went back out on deck and they were still there but it was dark so nobody was taking any notice of them anymore and the whales were still circling the boat in the darkness mm. with their senses yeah. of you know echolocation yeah. and the way they're seeing the world in sound without light and visually probably still being very acute um and in that moment my appreciation of them switched to the different to a different sense yeah I, I didn't need to know how many there were no or each one was the male or the female or what behaviors they were doing it was just hearing the movement of them catching the odd glimpse of a silhouette of an animal in the darkness and really just appreciating them as a things of beauty hearing the sounds yeah absorbing yeah in an experiential way, yeah. being amidst them in their world. I, I recall seeing um, the lovely Montague's Harrier mm -hmm. in flying over a field in North Norfolk, um, and but it was kind of on a you know a spring day. It wasn't sunny, you know, kind of white cloud cover. Um, it it's it's a beautiful bird with its sort of grey and the, the black wingtips. It it was wonderful to see. Then going to a different part of the world and seeing the same bird at a similar time of year but seeing it in a hot Mediterranean spring um, over a field that contained a very similar crop to the field I, I saw the bird over in, in Norfolk. The landscape is undulates in an ostensibly similar way Seeing it in that light, in that place, made the bird suddenly mean. Seeing the bird in that context gave it meaning, and it meant much more. The bird seemed to be um, a, an amplified version of itself, um, much more than over uh, a field in Norfolk. And I can't really put my finger on why. But suddenly the whole thing makes sense and the bird became an animal that was so much more than itself and the sum of its own parts because of that light. I suppose, yeah, and I suppose the bird would have looked different. Those those blacks and those smoky greys would have been so much more black and so much more smoky grey because of the light. Um, but it was a much more beautiful thing and a much more affecting experience and I can't put my finger on why. I think you described that really beautifully. In fact, I, it's, I want to write it down immediately because I love the fact that you described it as being an amplified version of itself. Now, you and I were recently at the 
as the launch of the Society of Wildlife Artists, mm. uh, annual exhibition of paintings in the Mole Galleries in London, and the best of those works amplify the creature you're looking at. I think one of the first bird paintings I was cognizant of really was was your friend of mine, Darren Reese, painting of Sandwich Turn, which was it seemed entirely composed of light, mm. great slabs of light, and I think from what I understand that Darren really absorbed a lot of that approach to wildlife art from the famous Swedish painter Lars Jonsson mm -hmm. and whose, whose work has consistently been about that. But there's something about living in a place and knowing a place and seeing, coming back to the rhythms and the seasons here, but the pulse of life, the rhythm of, of the year and understanding the, the effect, the quality of the light will be, you know exactly where you are in a way that that tree in your view or mm. out of your window will be illuminated at, you know, yeah. the beginning of November. Yeah. yeah. As opposed to any other time, and, and I kind of, I was a, a bit of a nomad really, and I don't like having a sense of place. I think of it as a, it's a false lead for me. A giving up. Yeah, it's yeah. like I, I want. I You've want, stopped exploring. Exactly. You, yeah. That, mm. You know, and, and I said so there's something a little bit too cosy in putting the slippers on here and getting getting in the chair. But but I I, I can see that. I know. should mention that right now you have got slippers on. Well, they're very fashionable. And you are sitting in a chair. This is it then. I'm not moving. I'm just going to gaze out of the window and look at the quality of light each day. Um, but there is something fascinating about that sense of place when it relates to something as intrinsically... You can't put your hands on it. It's come and it's gone. And, and that, and that, that, and that I like. And, and that familiarity works on so many levels. But and, and we have just emerged from a kind of tree-lined track... Um, up the upper kind of spur of the downs in North Hampshire, and we're we're now out into the open, about to walk right onto the top of a down. Behind us is Watership Down, and in front of us is a place called Ladle Hill, which on top of it is the undulations of a of an Iron Age hill fort. We reflected on whether light is gives us a sense of place and at this time of year middle of autumn um, this is the light that I recognize on my home patch it's the it's the way the world appears it is a particular type of light and not something that it does have particular qualities that I don't experience in in lots and lots of other places and what's really interesting is if we were out taking photographs, if we were wanting to paint. I don't think we'd select, we wouldn't select now to do it. No. So we talked about light as sort of a, a spotlight on something, illuminating it, or articulating it in some way, bringing it to prominence. You wouldn't do that here, but the light is just as important for capturing a sense of season, of place, and the fading of the day. One of the bits of writing that I that's the kind of hinges on what we've been talking about um, is by the great 
American writer Barry Lopez and he wrote an essay called The Stone Horse. In The Stone Horse he recounts um, going to a place in Southern California where the indigenous peoples who made this horse in the ground could manipulate the ground in a certain way that it, it, it formed the shape of a horse. And in this piece of writing he talks about um, how once he, he found the horse, the stone horse in the ground, um, he was, he stayed for a long while looking at it very still, um, but it was a shift in the light that suddenly jolted him into more consciousness and, and made him move and made him look at this in a different way because whether the original artists knew it or not, the way that the, the angle of the light reflecting on the stone horse gave it a whole new quality and suddenly brought it alive and suddenly gave its gave more suggestion and definition to its shape and the way that they had captured the contours of the horse's body. And I, from the writing I understand it's a kind of full horse in full gallop and so it's not a kind of gentle representation of a horse, it's really really alive and 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 kinetic. And he talks of how the light creates that kineticism. We see lots of evidence that our ancestors recognised its importance, not only to their ability to live and make shelter and find food, but as a, a genuine way of them helping them understand their place on the earth and understand their place in the earth and as part of their ecology. I love that. I think that's that's very true. And uh, I guess it, make, it makes me think of... So much of art, and in particular, I think of ancient art. Mm. Um, it, it chimes on that. That's it, it, exactly where it comes from. And and strive as we can to see the non-human world through other eyes. We're always forced back on seeing how how it reflects on us and how we reflect through it. So you talked about. Barry Lopez writing about this stone horse and I was thinking about Paleolithic art cave paintings were they designed to be seen under the flickering of a torch were they were they meant to be viewed in a certain way and, and the quality of the light was the thing that would illuminate mm. our understanding of it make us feel something and speak to us about what we're being shown thank you for listening and you can find out more about the podcast as well as more about us and links to information on all of the books and other things we've discussed today on our website at beneaththestream.com.